there's blood everywhere. I don't know what exactly has happened. I just saw a bunch of blood and I panicked. And so I didn't know what happened. I couldn't look at it. I was afraid to look at it. So I ran inside the store and I'm like, hey, I need help. And I'm covering up with blood everywhere. And one of the butchers ran over. He was like, let me see, let me see it. And he looked at it and he said, you'll be fine. We are witnessing America as a failed social experiment. How do we tell this story in a way that builds the kind of emotional momentum that colorblind ideology builds? So many young brothers and sisters of the younger generation find themselves so far removed from the best of their past. What are we going to make out of the nothing we've been given? How do you envision possibility? Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome, welcome to The Tightrope. I'm here with Dr. Cornell West, and we have a special guest today, Christian Rapper, rapper who's also a Christian. We're going to discuss the differences between those two. Lecrae, we're so delighted to have him. Before we bring him on, we're going to talk a little bit, introduce the subject, and move us along, put some framework on the conversation. It's been a real, just a blessing to spend time with his work and thinking about hip-hop, which I've spent a lot of time thinking about over the many years. I'm just fascinated about the trajectory of hip-hop. You know, Cornell, we've talked a lot about this. It begins as this extraordinary intervention in the process of music making, right? It just dramatically changes what it means to make music, brings the voices of marginal black and brown people right into the fore. It takes them from being completely spoken for in the 70s, for sure, in the mainstream, to having a voice of their own. Just incredible storytelling that hip-hop elevates. It's really the longest form storytelling music that Black people have created. That is to say, it can tell you a cinematic treatment, right? <laughs> in mm. song, right? <laughs> That's um, a beautiful way of putting it. And so you really get a deep visual, you get an emotional resonance. It's also individual, right, what my story is, but it's also collective. It tells an experiential collective story. And, you know, there have been Christian rappers all along, rappers rapping about Christianity in both directions from the beginning. But it seems like we're in a new moment. It seems as though people are much more open in hip hop to a kind of interrogation of interiority, of the emotional inner world. There's certainly plenty of posturing still going on, but there's much, much more sensitivity to the suffering as a lived experience, right? Not just as a, hey, there's been suffering, so this is my response, but suffering as an ongoing experience and, and people looking for a way to create a sense of hope and also a bomb in a certain way. So the journey has been really amazing. I mean, there's been some real pitfalls along the way. We'll talk about that in hip hop also. But we're just so mm -hmm. fortunate to have mm -hmm. Ray here with us. Cornell, did you want to say a few things? Yeah, I just want the, uh, the world to know that Brother Lecrae is a special kind of brother, special kind of artist, because he exemplifies a level of artistic excellence. He takes his craft seriously, he takes his technique seriously, and he's honest about his own experience. He plunges deep in the dark corners of his own soul and transfigures whatever suffering he has into a creativity that's very, very real. Mm. Now, see, I believe that just as there's no such thing as Christian physics or Christian mathematics or Christian diet, there's no such thing as a Christian hip-hop artist. Mm. The hip-hop artist just got to tell the truth, and the truth is also happens to connect with Jesus. Same way, I'm a revolutionary Christian, but I'm not really a 
Christian philosopher. I'm just a philosopher telling the truth, loving the people and seeking justice who also happen to be in love with Jesus. So Jesus go with me. So in that sense, it's part of this very rich tradition. Because like Prince himself, he's not really a Jehovah Witness artist. He's a mm-hmm. genius, but he tied into Jehovah Witness now. All, you know, the last 15 years of his life. So in that way, what we're seeing is young folks' hunger for something real, spiritual, moral, political, economic, institutional, personal. So it gets inside precisely what Sister Trish is talking about, interiority, the inside, all the wounds and bruises owing to the trauma they've been through, but also connecting to the critiques of structures and institutions. And in that sense, you know, it's like Curtis Mayfield. Curtis is one of the greatest ever at the highest level. And it's very, very rare that you get somebody like Lecrae. It really is, though, brother. That's why it's a blessing to actually get a chance to talk with you, because art is the kind of thing where uh, art is not democratic. You know, everybody can't be Tony Mars. Everybody can't be Prince. Everybody can't be James Brown. Everybody can't be Aretha. We can all love her, but everybody can't be her. You know what I mean? You can't be Tupac. I remember Tupac was in my class at 10 years old at House of the Lord Pentecostal Church, National Black United Front, every week for two years with his mother, Afeni. And I looked at Tupac, I said, now this little brother, he looked like a black genius to me because he's writing all these notes and I'm giving all these lectures to think. Now I'm just a little small moment in his formation, but you could tell. And I told the folk then, I said, now this brother right here, he's a special kind of brother. Tupac's a special mm-hmm. kind of brother. And the same was true with Mary Lou Williams and Jerry Allen. We got certain folk who are called out, who have tremendous responsibility and a burden, but also great joy. Because it's a joy to serve the people. It's a joy to be a truth teller. It's a joy to, to move people at the deepest level. And so that's why we're so very glad to have, have you. And, you know, Sister Trisha's work, Black Noise, that classic, ooh, they needed to hand out that book to all the hip-hop artists of your generation. Just hand it out and see wow. where KRS one come from, where African Bombada come from, where, you know, all the great, the brother of the message, Grandmaster Grand Flash, Master Flash from the Furious Five. You laid that stuff out so powerfully. But what we want to do now, though, is just going to open it up for dialogue with our brother. Yes, indeed. Just in case we have people who are here who don't know who Lecrae is, he's a very celebrated, award-winning, multi-platinum artist who is also an activist and a writer. I believe you have a book coming out, right? We'll get to that. Yeah, um, yeah, I think you got two of them. Two books? I have one that I've written, but another one's coming out. Coming yeah. out, okay. Because oh, one was on the New York Times bestseller yeah. list. You got another one wow. coming out. Okay. Right, right, right. He's an entrepreneur and a philanthropist and fantastic hip-hop artist, and we're delighted for you to join us here on the tightrope. Thank you, Lecrae, for being here. No, it's an honor. I'm sincerely honored to be here and uh, grateful for y'all's voices. Yes, indeed. Well, it's going to be a whole group thing. So let's sort of start with your journey. I mean, let's just take it back for a minute, give people some rich context for how did you get here? How did you decide to choose hip hop as the context for your expression? How did you come to this place? Yeah, well, you know, hip hop chose me. We're talking about an art form that was created by disenfranchised black and brown kids in the Bronx and black and brown kids all over the world who saw that felt like, man, we have a voice. And I was one of those kids who felt like, wow, looking on the television and listening to the radio, I heard these voices that represented my environment, my neighborhood, the things that I was wrestling with and and processing. I mean, obviously they became a part of my formation as a young black man in America. I grew up a little bit all over the place. So I started on the South side of Houston, 
My mother was from Third Ward and she actually, my activism is rooted in her because of the way she was raised. She was grew up during the civil rights era. So she experienced a lot of things and wanted to make sure that I remembered and understood a lot of these things. So obviously listening to hip hop music, I wanted to hear that type of message infused with some of my own environment. So Tupac was definitely formative in my growth as a kid. Yeah, I just love the ability to express myself. I needed hip hop. I needed to talk about the things going on inside and what was going on in my community. So that was kind of how it initially started for me, was just needing to express myself. Right. Was it something about being from the South that connected you to OutKast and some of the other great Southern artistic geniuses coming out of that? Absolutely. Because, you know, it's funny how y'all were talking earlier about spirituality and hip hop and and spirituality in the South go hand in hand. It's kind of like that's just the Northeast was the social and the scientific and the South was the spiritual. And, you know, many times they were people frowned upon the South from the Northeast and they said, oh, they're slow and they, they haven't progressed and adjusted. And it wasn't that it was a slowness. It was that there was a difference in how things were being seen and being approached. It's like the blues and jazz. It's not that one is better than the other. It's that there's two different approaches in how they're expressing themselves through music. And so I think for me, I wanted people to know that there was a mind that was processing what was going on around me, but I was still a a Southerner. And that's what OutKast did for me, is they Mm. they vocalized their thoughts, but they still embraced those Southern roots. Were you in Houston after Katrina? I was not. I was in Dallas at that point in time. And so I was in Baton Rouge the night Katrina hit, just woke up to devastation and then was was fortunate enough to be able to drive back home to Dallas at that point in time and and just try to serve people. Right, right. Can you speak to what what you think were sort of the pivot points that really galvanized you to not just express music only, but to commit to the kind of music you make? I mean, you know, truth be told, there aren't a lot of role models in hip hop who are successful at the level you're successful, speaking the kinds of stories and rhymes and, and narratives that you're speaking. You had artistic role models, for sure. You mentioned Tupac, right? And Outkast. But there really weren't that many MCs, at least if I think about when you might be coming of age, right? And who might be famous at that time. You know, how did you really come to terms with sort of, this is Lecrae. This is how I'm going to be as an artist in the landscape as it has been. Yeah, well, you know, I think that what we've seen happen is that hip hop initially started as a form of expression for a lot of young people. And then it was galvanized by suburban white folks who wanted to kind of peer into this world that folks were talking about, but didn't actually, you know, want to experience it. So it's kind of like watching a Scarface movie. You want to see all the gangsterism, but you don't want to have to live through it. No, no, you want to be at home in your living room with that. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) What ends up happening is that as hip hop started talking about the effects of the Reagan era, the drug administrations and so on and so forth, and all the problems and the trauma that came along with it, it was eaten up by white America, suburban America. And because there was money involved, now it muddied up the mixture because now you didn't know how authentic you should be. Should I embellish these tales of trauma and terror because it sells more? So I kind of came up at the height of people kind of embellishing these tales. So I wrestled internally with, because there was gangs in my community and of course you wanted to be a part of it, but not because it was cool, but it was because these were the people around us who were informing us and, and it was a sense of family. But I had a a very militant mother, a very proactive mother, uh, aunts who were activists who traveled the world and spoken in different countries. And they were adamant about me using my voice and my life for something greater. 
And so I wrestled initially because I knew better, but I didn't do better. And so in my, in my earlier music, uh, before my spiritual transformation, I would kind of dumb down because it wasn't something that was exalted or highlighted in my community. Being educated and being and knowing about what's going on in the world was not something that was highlighted. So I dumbed it down and talked about the usual typical stuff, the money, the car, so on and so forth. But I think after my spiritual transformation, you know, I just came to the resolve that if I have work, if I have purpose, if I have dreams, then I was purposed for something, then there must be a greater being that gave me purpose. And I need to investigate not only who this being is, but what I've been purposed to do. And then there became the conflict in my life, which made me say, okay, I've got to start using my voice for more than the normal, you know, party, get drunk, get high, so on and so forth. This show begins with the one and only John Coltrane. I love Supreme. Yeah. And uh, I've argued that Rakim is a cold train of hip hop. I think he's the greatest of all time. That's just my personal view. You know right. I, mean? I didn't know I you felt Tupac. that way. Love... He's my favorite of all time. That's oh, crazy. Oh, yeah, I mean, oh Lord have mercy on me. Rakim is just off the map. But it's interesting in terms of his spirituality because a lot of those brothers up north have a spirituality that's tied to Islam, that's tied to black nationalists and religious practices, the five percenters and so forth and so on but they're in urban contexts that don't allow them to see the riches of the black church that produced me. So I'm thinking of your grandma. You see. Mm. He's, taking you to, he's taking you to church. And yep. you're thinking like, well, this really not for me right now. <laughs> <laughs> but it'll come back with a power later on. Yeah. And when that kind of spirituality connect to your genius, brother, you start soaring like an eagle. We ain't talking about no peacock. Because a lot of these hip-hop artists just peacock. Look at me, look at me, look at me. There look at my fullest. We ain't interested in fullest. Went to your fruit. Yeah. You shall know them by the fruit that you bear, not the fullest that you display, you see. And so that this tradition that you all actually are part of. Now, Coltrane, as you know, the heroin addict for 10 years, man. The most loving, sensitive, kind brother, but shooting up. And when he came out in April 1957, with his conversion and mm. then took off, man, and only lived for another 10 years and died at 40. Yeah. So that we have examples in our tradition of these great artists That's who good. can use their genius as a form of service to the people, but being willing to shatter any kind of the superficiality of so many other peacocks out there. When I call them peacocks, I'm not saying I don't love them. For I'm sure. just saying I don't want to be in a foxhole with them. For sure. That's what we've learned. We haven't learned who we are. So we are just affirming the infrastructures around us instead of understanding who we are. So it's kind of like I got to talk about the jewelry or the clothes because I don't know where my worth is outside of that. So that's what a lot happens. Yeah, that's real. The other thing is, and, you know, not to defend the peacock, but we <laughs> 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 have to call this, you know, we have to have that as a phrase, defending the peacock. But a lot of what's happened is that post-civil rights era, one of the things we integrated with was the model of success, right? right. And the, the model That's of right. success in American society is about what you get, what you can possess, what you can control, how desirable you can be. Now, of course, Black people will make that very stylish and much more seductive and interesting and fun than it normally is. Compared <laughs> so to that, you know, because you, you don't want to be in a situation where you're a boring peacock, you know, and Black folk just make it so exciting that you're like, well, I need to be one too. But there's also the internalization of that sense of in what way can I be successful? And if this is what we have in front of us, 
then this is what we're going to try to be successful in. But, you know, I just want to say one more thing about white consumption, because I've spent a lot of time on that, too. And it's not only what you first said, which was right on the money, Lecrae, which was that they wanted to see kind of peer in, like, you know, watching Scarface on the TV. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's also that they want to define what it means to be black Mm -hmm. by asking black performers to perform a very narrow set of stereotypical ideas about what it means to be black. So what that does is it sort of becomes another reinforcing mechanism. Well, we'll recognize you as black, but not you as black, because Mm -hmm. you're telling me what I think I already should know, or what I know about what it means to be authentic. A very quick story. I was in Nebraska many years ago trying to make an argument about stereotypical representations in hip hop and the problem of how it was destroying the legacy of what hip hop had and what it could do. And it was an all white audience. It was Nebraska. A young man stood up and he said, you know, you're not authentically black. What gives you the authenticity and the right to challenge, you know, Jay-Z or whoever we were talking about? And I was like, so can you show me the handbook? Where's the handbook where these people are authentic and these people aren't? But it was like, he says, you're not from the hood. I'm like, well, first of all, you don't actually know where I'm from. But you know, born in Harlem. Right. And raised in the Bronx, which is a whole other situation. The boogie boogie down Bronx. Bronx. That means you that means you might have a razor blade under your mouth on your tongue right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's a distinct possibility, Lecrae. Thank you for knowing that. (laughs) I've just tried to turn my tongue into a razor blade. Okay, all right. right. (laughs) But yeah, so I mean, that's been so powerful in terms of not just hey, let me get some money, but let me get some representation and authenticity of Blackness. And I think, you know, in terms of gender, this has been very destructive Mm. because women are one of the prime commodities of this whole commercialized framework. Mm. They're one of the things we're supposed to buy, we're supposed to get. I mean, literally, how did you say, okay, look, you said you knew right, but you did wrong. When did you merge that together? When did you move over and connect what you were doing in your world to what your beliefs were. I think it takes an instant to remove a person from slavery, but it takes a lifetime to get the slavery out of the person. So for me, it was a process. I think in one instant I knew, okay, I'm focusing on doing better and talking about things that matter. I was so inundated, I was swimming in false ideologies and misogynies, so objectification. I was swimming in it. I was so colonized in so many different ways that it just took a process just to come out of that. And, you know, unfortunately, oftentimes you turn to the loudest voices. It's kind of like if you get on Google and you search something, if I search, I don't know, diamonds, the loudest and most prominent powerful people who are in control of that industry are the first things you're going to find. So you may not find the authentic perspectives on diamonds or a very nuanced perspective on diamonds because those people don't have the power to have their website up front. So for me, even in my journey of faith, the biggest faces out there were in some sense of conservative evangelicalism was wading in the water. So you have to dive deeper to find out about a James Cone or to find out about the nuances of Martin Luther King. It doesn't rise up to the forefront. So for me, I would just say, it took a process of me being able to understand how we objectify. And I think I just threw everything out. I didn't stop thinking of women as lesser. I just transferred how they were lesser into this kind of colonized Christian viewpoint. So I was like, Mm. oh, 
I get it now. They're not objects that I should sleep with. They're just submissive creatures that should not speak. And so it took a time period to be able to wade through all of that nonsense. And that's American culture in a lot of ways. It's very misogynistic. Mm -hmm. It's uh, very eternalistic. It took a while, if I'm being 100 percent honest, and I was very grateful for people pushing back on me. It took people telling me stuff that I didn't want to hear. It took people challenging me and saying, you know, you're a mascot for something that's terrible. And if I was too wrapped up in myself and my perspective, I wouldn't have listened to them. But it was a gradual process, I would say. But that's where that spirituality of the deepest sort plays a crucial role. Mm. And I discern that in your work and your witness, though, brother, that for me, what allows you to be part of that small group of folk who we consider great are those who have a calling, not just a career. Mm. Those who are willing to speak a truth in the name of an integrity and a service to others, not mm. a popularity for the peacock status. Peacock struck because they can't fly. You got to be an eagle. You got to fly. You know what I mean? So what happens is, just like our politicians, see, that so many of our black professionals, they think that just being part of the symbolic representation of success is their contribution to the movement. And you say, no, we want substance as well as success. Yeah. We glad that you successful and you got money and you got wonderful artistry and so forth. Now what you gonna use it for? Boy. See, that becomes a challenge. That's where greatness comes in. See, Martin was broke as the Ten Commandments financially, but everybody remember him. They don't remember the most successful Negro in Atlanta in 1968. Right. Malcolm only had $151 in his pocket when he was shot. We shall forever remember Malcolm. He didn't mm. have no cash. Mm. He didn't have any success. Mm. He was in the world, but not of it. You see what I mean? Now, as a Christian, I'm moving toward Jesus. We know Malcolm going to move toward Allah. We understand. You know, We love each other across the board, right? We got agnostic brothers and sisters. We got atheist brothers and sisters. We got Buddhists like bell hooks and so forth and so on. We all part of the same tradition. We just got different expressions of it. But yep. what, what I love about what I see in you, and I listen to Welcome to America. Mm. I got to see that twice, man. <laughs> yeah. But you still keep the humor, the humanity, right. the humility. Mm. Humility is always the benchmark mark of spiritual maturity. That's what I see in you, man. That's a rare thing, brother. Wow. It's a, yeah. it's a rare thing, man. I just want to highlight one thing before we get too far away from it. I think you were gave a textbook perfect answer about what it takes to overcome sort of the indoctrination of anything, but in particular misogyny. It takes a long time. There are new ways it, it moves into certain boxes, right? So that you don't just wake up fully developed, right? You have to be patient and you have to be willing to listen to trusted people who are going to challenge you. And yeah. that is humility yeah. and maturity, to go back to Cornell's point. Yeah. But it's also vulnerability. Mm. Oh, yes. Right? Absolutely. And vulnerability yeah. is the only way you truly learn something, right? Yeah. You really have. And I mean, so I hear in your work True. confidence and intelligence and creativity, but I also hear a comfort with just the normal range of human vulnerability. Right. Can you speak to some of that in terms of was it your spiritual fortitude? What creates the comfort with that? Because that is the Achilles heel of hip hop, in my opinion, right? It's this yeah. very uncomfortable with vulnerability. And, and you really clearly show that hip hop can be really powerful, engaging, and vulnerable. Yeah, honestly. So if you look at my formation, I've experienced so many different traumas, you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse, abandonment, 
it just the list goes on and on. And my outlet was being vulnerable, but in the form of like poetry or rap or writing down these things. Now, these are things that needed to be said, but I never expected them to be heard. I wouldn't have let people listen to them, but I knew how much it meant for me to write them down. And every so often there would be an opportunity where somebody would see something I wrote, or maybe there was a girl I was trying to talk to and I just expressed how I felt via writing and expressed it. And it always drew them closer. It made them more endearing to me. And in some ways was helpful. And I'll never forget this. It stays with me forever is I was working as a bag boy at a grocery store as a teenager. And uh, I was riding the shopping cart. I didn't have no business doing that, but I was doing it anyway. (laughs) Shopping cart flipped over while I was riding it and it ripped my fingernail out of my finger. Ooh. There's blood everywhere. I don't know what exactly has happened. I just saw a bunch of blood and I panicked. And so I didn't know what happened. I couldn't look at it. I was afraid to look at it. So I ran inside the store and I'm like, hey, I need help. And I'm covering up with blood everywhere. And one of the butchers ran over. He was like, let me see, let me see it. He looked at it and he said, you'll be fine. And I was like, how do you know? And then he held up his hand and he held up four fingers. He was missing. He held up three fingers. He was missing one finger. And when I saw his hand, I saw this man had chopped off his finger. He was a butcher. It calmed me because he had gone through something and he was showing me his scars and allowing me to find out that even with my wound, has there's healing on the other side of my wound because he's got scars and he's okay. And man, that stuck with me. And I thought, that's what I want to do for people. I want to show off my scars so they know their wounds can heal. That resonated with me. And I wanted to do that in music and just share that. Because the first time I did it, I did it in a song where I talked about, like, man, I was broke. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I didn't own any land. And I was just talking about it. And everyone's like, yo, you telling my story. This is crazy. And I was like, wow, people really resonate with the vulnerability. So I think leaders lead in vulnerability. That's what we want from our leaders. That's what we need to see from them is a level of vulnerability. A vulnerability that's connected to a moral tenacity and a personal integrity. Mm. Because I think one of the roles of the artist is to allow people to see things that other people don't see. See, the difference between talent and genius, talent would look at the bullseye and hit it every time. Genius will hit a bullseye nobody else can see. Mm. That's good. Genius genius allows us to see things we couldn't see before more clearly. Then you had to have a courage to execute it more courageously and more lovingly. Mm. Yeah. I'm talking about self-righteousness here. Yeah. We're not talking about dogmatism. We're talking about what it is to really follow lovingly with the vulnerability, with the tenacity, with that kind of integrity, though. Absolutely. Because I think part of our problem right now is we got such decadent leadership, politically, artistically, religiously, and so forth. So even in this situation with Brother George Lloyd, for example, we're talking about police murder, mm. police crimes. We got to hit it head on. But there's a connection between those crimes and Wall Street crimes. So you talk about political accountability. It's got to be Wall Street accountability. Then there's a connection mm. between Pentagon crimes. There got to be accountability of Pentagon, Wall Street, and police. And then the politicians who come along and facilitate or hide and conceal those crimes. Right. So all these politicians act like they're so upset. Black folk have been getting shot every day. I tell you, think you think you... Don't tell what color the politician is all that time. And at the same time, the Pentagon been dropping drones in Yemen, in Pakistan, killing innocent folk. 
every day. They ain't said a mumbling word. Wall Street been ripping the folk off with their greed. Every day they get bailed out. Every day people don't. You see what I mean? So that yeah. genius says, look, we have a moral consistency. See, that's Stevie One, the love and need of love. That love has got to be vulnerable, but it's consistent. Mm-hmm. You ain't going to have no love if you ain't consistent. You ain't yeah. going to have no love if you're not reliable. And the yeah. people want the truth from the artists, from the politicians, from the intellectuals, and so forth. It makes me think, of, now I have questions, but go ahead, Trisha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Cornell will leave you with questions now. He will. Let me just bring it back to connect Cornell's points to your music a little bit, very specifically, because I think what you've done, the intervention you've made in trap music, right, in terms of taking the trap sound and dramatically changing the narrative associated with it, it's so profound that I actually am waiting for you to say what Trap says. I'm like, when's he going to get to the Trap lyrics? You know? And I'm like, this is a Trap beat. When's we going to have the Trap beat lyric? And I realized it's not coming. And so now, and this is important because right, the Trap House, right, is articulation of systemic racism in the way that Cornell was just talking about in a broader sense around who's doing all these crimes. But, you know, Wall Street is part of the gutting of Black communities and banking fraud and destroying people's opportunities to create even a poor, stable neighborhood. And so the trap house becomes the terrible articulation of what's left that people have to suffer with. But trap lyrics that people normally attach to that includes a kind of almost a hedonistic acceptance of the very circumstances that yeah. trap has grown out of based on the conditions. So what you mm. do is bring mm. trap in, you say, this is a trap sound, this is a trap reality, and here's an alternative reality to that trap circumstance. Yeah, yeah. You gotta do yeah, that. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's powerful. You gotta do that, because for multiple reasons, right? I mean, one is just for the sheer sake of solidarity. You can't come in with this condescending attitude, communities of color or the trap, so to speak, with this condescending attitude as if your values are their values. You know, sometimes your values are other people's ideals. It's like, yeah, ideally I like to go to college. That's ideal, but that's not a value of mine because that's not in my reality. That's not in my spectrum. So I just wanted to speak to people, not at people. You know what I mean? And I wanted to let also, because I noticed there's, like you said, that white consumption that's listening in. I'm like, yeah, come listen, because I want you to hear a different side of the trap. I lived in a trap, you know, I've seen a lot of crazy stuff, but at the same time, I've seen mothers doing a phenomenal job of raising their children. I've seen young men who did not go down the paths that everybody expected them to go down. I've seen them turn into coaches and coach basketball teams and amazing community that don't get highlighted because like you said, the idea of consumption and celebrity culture only allows us to show a portion of ourselves to where people think we homogenize people. And so it's like, now, you know, all you know of are one aspect of who we are as people. So when the riot and the looting start, that becomes to define black people as a whole. And you feel justified in saying that these are thugs and so on and so forth. When the yeah. reality of it is, is that we are very nuanced. But people hate nuance. That's my struggle. So that's why I made the the record, just to keep punching at the reality that people hate nuance. I remember I was in France. I'm in Paris. I'm out the hood. This is my first time in Paris. And I'm hungry. I can't read the menu. (laughs) I'm hungry and I'm frustrated. And people are like, yo, go to this restaurant. And I go to this restaurant and I'm like, I don't know what this is. And so I settled for McDonald's because I just could not figure out how to eat. 
over there. And I missed out on some amazing gourmet food because I too much to process. Now, fast forward, now I've learning to be patient and wrestle with the language and get some tools and some people to help me translate. I've gotten to experience quality meals, but I had to wrestle with the nuance of learning a new language in order to taste yes. the beauty of it all. And I think that's what people struggle with is they don't want to wrestle with our nuance to, to see the beauty of who we are as a people and to see the trap for more than just where the drugs get sold and the, the boarded up houses are and so on and so forth. So yeah, that's, oh, that's so true. Lord, Lord. I just love the openness, though, you know, I mean, I think you and I are similar in the sense that I was a gangster before I met Jesus, and now I'm a redeemed sinner with gangster proclivity. <laughs> what I mean by that is, is that I had all of this stuff inside of me, and then I got transformed at the blood of the cross, not Kool-Aid, because most of the stuff at the cross these days in church is just Kool-Aid. People want to dip in just in yeah. order to get it the next commodity, the next possession. But when right, Jesus right. really changes your life, and you're in the world, but not of it, and you're picking up your cross, and you're denying yourself in terms of being of service, and you're giving yourself, you're emptying yourself, you're donating yourself, you are trying to sacrifice yourself in order for a kingdom trying to come in in the form of love, and that justice is what love looks like in public. So that you and I are very, very similar in that sense as revolutionary Christians, let's put it that way. Mm. But at the same time, we recognize that the church has failed people, man. Yeah, facts. I don't deny that. It's failed me. <laughs> you said Jesus didn't fail you, but the church did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, what, isn't that what Gandhi said? Gandhi said, I love your Jesus. I hate your Christians or I don't like your Christians. It's something to that effect. Yeah. So yes. I, yeah. I get it. You know what I mean? I totally understand. And that's, that's a part of the conundrum that I live in as well. And that's frustrating. Yes. I just think it's unfair of how a black person has to live their lives in this whole conundrum of white supremacy or like uh, France Fanon's book, uh, Black Skin, White Mask, where everything is the backdrop of everything. You're processing the white world. And I have a lot of great friends who are white friends. I have tons of white fans. For we sure. do. We all do. We recognize that that human connection is real. You know? Absolutely. But at the same time, as a Christian from my own community, I've got to navigate helping people understand I'm not shucking and jiving over here because I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm not embracing uh, a white supremacy or right. a slave master's philosophy or belief. Like I'm talking about something that predates slavery. I'm talking about it. It's an Eastern religion if there ever was one. You Absolutely. Know I mean? And Jesus doesn't look like Michelangelo's uncle. Exactly. <laughs> I'm following a, a brown Palestinian Jew. <laughs> So overflowing. That's right. That's right. You know, so for me, that's just part of the conundrum that I have to wrestle with. It's a lot of layers that I unfortunately have to battle through on a regular basis um, just to be taken seriously. But, you know, hey, that's the cross I bear. No, but God is using you, brother. God is I'm using great. you in a mighty, mighty way. I appreciate so that. On this, Lecrae, you know, this follows from this conversation a little bit. Your new album coming out or it just came out what May 15th, right? Well, it comes out. It's coming out. So we slid okay. that date back. Yeah. It's on the way. Talk a little bit about restoration, right? What are you referring to here? Because there's so much trauma right now being mm -hmm. videotaped and repeated. You know, I worry about young people's you know, fortitude in the face of that level of the repetition of so much extreme public hatred, really, yeah. and, and violence. 
what was your intention? Were you hoping to be a kind of a bomb for healing around a lot of these issues? Or what were the issues that drove you to focus on the theme of restoration right now, which I feel like is right on time? You nailed it. I wanted people to have hope because I needed it. First of all, after Trayvon was murdered, I spoke out and I didn't. I guess that was my naivete. Like, I just thought everybody would be outraged. You know, the last time we had anything in my young life was like Rodney King or something like, wow, surely we've progressed and everyone's going to be mad about this. And then I was faced with so much backlash for speaking out about Trayvon. I was like, what? Exactly. I see the same thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Fast forward to Mike Brown and Philando and Sandra Bland and Eric Garner. And unfortunately the list goes on and I continue to stand up and say something. And man, I just never been met with such visceral hate in my life. You know what I mean? Like it was just constant and consistent. And it drove me to probably one of the darkest places I've ever been in. You know, it drove me to wrestling with my faith, wrestling with my purpose, my worth. If you hear that you're worthless enough times, you'll begin to embody that. You'll begin to embrace that and say, well, forget it, I'm worthless then. It might as well be, you know, you'll figure out what that means to you and you'll take whatever route. It was such a dark point in my life. I found myself, I woke up one morning just in like a clinical depression and I should have been in counseling way before that. But, you know, I was like counseling was, that's not for me. I don't do no counseling, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? But it was so bad that I had to go to counseling. I had to you know, go get therapy and get help. And that journey and that process of becoming better and becoming healthy, I thought to myself, man, everybody needs this. Because I lost a lot of friends, I'm not lost in a sense, they're not my friends anymore, but I lost a lot of friends, like they lost themselves in that whole, it was new for us. You know, we were, we just like this. We weren't prepared. We bought into the American dream and just dropped on our heads. That's where the sense of black history becomes so fundamental. Yeah. And when you think of the black musical tradition as the greatest tradition in the modern world for spiritual fortitude, moral courage, and artistic creativity. So that, for example, Curtis Mayfield never won a Grammy, but Millie Vanilli won two, right? Mm. Curtis Mayfield's not looking to the Grammy for his point of reference. He wants to know whether, in fact, those who came before, what do you think about it, Jerry Butler? What do you think about it? You see, it, his tradition becomes the lens to which he views himself. So it ain't about the pull and dirt, it ain't about these prizes. It's not about the establishment. We want to put a smile on grandmama's face. Grandmama never questioned your worth, ever. Yeah. Isn't that true? She yeah. loves you to death. Yeah. So if you put a smile on her face, it don't make no difference what these white supremacists and neoliberals who <laughs> act like they loving white folk and children got their own little program and agendas and so forth. That's not the point of reference. That's how black sanity and dignity is preserved. But that's what is in your art. That's in your music, though, brother. Right, right. That's right. So that's what I want to bring artistically. If there's a message I want to give people, because I remember Ta-Nehisi addressing this, and he was like, man, I'm just not going to wait for this by and by religion. And I was like, well, I, I understand the sentiment, but I think pessimism is the belief that based on the evidence, nothing's going to change. Optimism is the belief that based on the evidence, things will change. But hope is the belief that with or without the evidence, that's it. God's faithful. I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to keep pushing. And we ain't got no problem with Brother Coach being pessimistic as long as he's fighting with us. As long exactly. as you said, as long as you're fighting, that's cool. But if you're going to be a spectator, then you're right. a coward. Right. If you're going right, to be a right. bystander, then you're a coward. You see yeah. what I mean? 
So I, I don't care what your ideology is. You got folk coming in with Buddha and come in with all kinds of different stuff, but they ready to throw down. You see what I mean? You ready to throw down? I got Jesus, you got Buddha, you got atheism. Let's throw down together. What my music wants to do too is it wants to address, it's like an onion. There's a layer of restoration that's simply just your mental and emotional health. You don't have to embrace any of the spiritual health if you do awesome. But some people, that's you just right. need right. You just own it. Right. So I just want to make sure you get fed today. So That's exactly it though, man. Wow. Well, we go have a couple minutes for some questions from the audience. This has been so dynamic. I think we went longer than usual. Yeah, we with sure this, did. Brother, yeah. I know the audience is probably mad. They're like not taking none of our doggone questions. So we got some people who really have very specific and great questions for you, Lecrae. So I'm, sure. I'm going to read uh, one of them I think you want to answer here, and hopefully we get to a few of them. Yes. One says here, Lecrae, you reference in the song Can't Stop Me Now that you started to doubt God. I am struggling with having conversations with God over some personal tragedies the last few years. What has helped you and bring you back when you get lost? Yeah, I think one thing is I had to remember and learn that God is not transactional. He's relational. So I just had to learn like he doesn't snap his fingers and make everything change. He walks with me in that journey of pain and struggle. And I think that's the beauty of my relationship with God. And then the biggest part is having an integrated community, having a community that's integrated in every part of your life who's willing to just be there and walk with you through that process. Because that's going to be the skin on your faith is seeing actual people who love you and who walk with you and who care for you. So that was really what helped me was people who were just there every day. You know, they weren't trying to fix me. They were just going to face me and help me process and walk with me. Mm, wow. That's, that's beautiful. it. All that's right, let's it right we got, I hope they're still listening because that's a fantastic answer. So this is a non-spiritual question directly, but a question about music, that there are basically genres that exclude Black performers. They're thinking of opera, Western, classical music. Have you found yourself being excluded from genres that you want to participate in in the music industry? I know you have that song with Tori Kelly and you know others. So have you found it difficult to bridge those gaps or has it been a real artistic uh, connection? I mean, America is really just built on a construct of race. And so it's so embedded into our culture. I don't know if people even realize it. When you say R&B, you're saying black. When you say pop, you're saying white. So Beyonce, no matter how big she gets, she's a pop icon, she's going to be an R&B artist. When you say contemporary Christian, you're saying white. When you say gospel, you're saying black. It's so embedded in our culture, I think that people have this expectation that you're supposed to do the black thing, that opera is white, and you need to go do something else with your voice because this is not for you. But I mean, there's always going to be those people who break the barriers and who are transcultural, you know, Prince is one of those people. He doesn't fit. That's that nuance we're talking about. So that's it goes back to that again. It's just saying, look, pioneers kick down doors. It's going to be difficult, but it's got to happen. Right. Well, we've got to remind that person. Oh, we've got Kathleen Battle and we just lost Jesse Norman, two of the greatest artists in the history of opera singing. Mm. And we ain't got the Charlie Pride yet. He's chocolate. That's he's right. chocolate as he could be. But, but he's in country music. You know, and Hank Williams was very much a blues man on the vanilla side of town. He was very connected with the blues artists on the chocolate side of town. Right. And he knew who the real geniuses were. They right. came out of the Delta, Mississippi. So that in that sense, even the question itself doesn't realize how thorough black genius and black talent has already permeated and Absolutely. penetrated the very genres that they use. 
Right, right. Absolutely. But, you know, at the same time, you have someone like Nas X, who has a country rap, who was literally refused for a while to even be charted on the country charts until he he added a, you know, a country singer's sort of, I forgot who it was right now. Maybe it's Miley Cyrus's father. That's what allowed him to get charted on the country chart. So there's a real kind of policing of these genres. Oh, no, that's true. Or if we had Ray Charles, we had Lionel Richie from Tuskegee, Alabama with the Commodore. Right. Stuck on you. <laughs> he shifted to gear and singing country with Kenny Rogers and them. He make, you can't police black genius and black talent. Let's just put it that way. Well, they keep trying, but I'm with you. You can't do oh, it. Oh, they try to police all of us. They're going to kill yeah. some of us, but we're going to keep swinging. Yes, <laughs> All right, we got a really good, just many questions. Let me just get a couple more in before we run out of time here. But how can we, Lecrae, better walk with our brothers and sisters when we might not agree with their political or social positions? What can mm-hmm. we do to learn to disagree and respect? I'll throw that out to both of you. In so many ways, I feel like they answer their own question. You know what I mean? Walking with them and learning to disagree and respecting them. You know what I mean? Disagree does yeah. not mean dislike. One is I think there's a simple level of, again, it goes back to appreciating the nuance. It goes back to the beauty, like a rainbow is beautiful because of the multitude of colors within it and not because it's one color, one shade. And, um, and, and it's learning how to appreciate those nuances. I think we're just so quick to dismiss people because of these broad strokes that people get painted with instead of being able to sit back and say, okay, okay, you're not typical in the way that I thought you were, but maybe you are, Mm -hmm. but we connect on this other level over here that I don't think people understand. So, and it's getting over your fears. I had to get over that. I collaborated with artists that people were like, what is he doing collaborating with? And you just got to get over your fears and be who you were created to be. Run your race. That's my, that's exactly right. That's That's exactly. As Christians, my brother and myself, that we believe that each human being was made in the image and likeness of God. Therefore they have a dignity that's never reducible to their politics. They have a preciousness that's not reducible to their ideology. And they also have the capacity to choose and go another way. That's what the gospel is about. You can go another way, no matter what your nightmare, your trauma, your tear, you can go another way, given this gift of grace that can transform you. And that's available to everybody. Gangsters come in all colors. It's available to everybody. But you got to be clear about who your foes and your enemies are. It's just that when Jesus says, love your enemies, part of what it has to do is you better keep track of them because when you love justice and Jesus, you're going to have tons of enemies. And you don't and you don't want to get obsessed with them. If you're obsessed with your enemies, you can't do what God put you here to do, yeah. which is pursue love and justice and truth. This is good. Yes, indeed. Man, good. well, I mean, it's just been such a blessing. I hope you'd be willing to come back, Lecrae. I feel like we just barely scratched the surface, you know, to get a sense of what yeah, this brother, you got depth now. You got depth. Of it. It's true. I love it. I, I should have did more listening and talking, but it was great. No, no. <laughs> yeah, no well, we, you, we learned from your wise words, my brother. I'm most you. definitely. So maybe after your, do you know, do you have a date for when the new album is coming out? Yeah, the album will be out this August. Okay. All right. Well, maybe after that, we can get you on and talk more and drill down and talk about that new work. And then you also you have another book coming out. It's October. Book is in October. I am restored how I lost my religion, but found my faith. Cornell, we're going to have to have a back to talk about that. He working, man. You see how that dialectic is working? 
<laughs> yes, indeed. No, I'm but God bless you and your family, man. And you just keep yeah. being the force for good. And your calling is so, so special, man. It's been our pleasure. It's great to have you here on the tightrope. And we're going to say goodbye to you and then quickly do some housekeeping before we sign off. So we'll see you again soon, I hope. And, you know, you hang on these tough times. People are going to be looking to your work to help them out. And it's going to be a beautiful thing. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Lecrae. Yeah, All right. Well, Take care. All right. Well, Brother West, this time, ooh, that flew by, didn't it? That time just flew by. And that was the longest one that we had for uh, dialogue with the three of us. Yeah, I was like, let's go straight to that because, so you know, there's so much. But the brother, do. he's got a special kind of not just artistic genius, but a wisdom about him. Yeah, for his age. Just, I mean, oh he's my so wild. Absolutely. Yeah. And, he you know, can work so, some things through in his life. Yes, indeed. That's so true. And that, that's the key, really, right? To, that's, to that's a right. certain kind of spiritual guided success, right? Not success that's, in market terms. Absolutely. But to really work on yourself and understand the work on yourself as an individual and in a tradition. And in a tradition and as part of a community. Yeah, that's what's beautiful. That was beautiful. All right. Well, we're so grateful for this audience and for this venue and opportunity. It's so great to be in conversation with you, Cornell. It's a real blessing for me. Always uh, a blessing for me. I just want to say thank you and wish everyone well. And we will look forward to seeing you again next time. And don't forget to join us, register and sign up. We're going to keep bringing the noise and bringing the wisdom as best we can. All right, everybody. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Tight Rope Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to 411 at speakerbox.com. That's the numbers 411 at S-P-K-E-R-B-O-X dot com. The Tightrope Podcast is produced by Speakerbox Media in collaboration with the Podcast Laundry Production Company and is executive produced by Dr. Cornell West, Professor Tricia Rose, and Jeremy Berry.